You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so Bezras Hashem, tonight we're going to be continuing with our series of shirim on the inner world of recovering, and this is going to be the fifth shir in that series. And like all of the shirim that we're going to be giving for the next foreseeable time period, all of the hisairus and the chizik or any limit Torah or amuna or bitachon that emerges out of listening to a shir like this or the fact that these words are coming out of my mouth at the moment, doing whatever they need to do, should be for Rafua Shalema for my sweetest uncle, David ben Esther Tova, who's in need of a Rafua Shalema, Besaych Sharchele Yisrael. The Ezra Sashem, we spoke two weeks ago about the need for an individual to cultivate their personal narrative when it comes to looking back on the process through which they emerge into the world of recovering. Because for many of us, in whatever form or path we find ourselves, marching, falling, crawling, tripping over ourselves along the path of tshuva, each and every one of us have to be mitmodeid, we have to face and contemplate what it means to confront our past selves, what it means to relate to myself as I existed in the past with all of my hangups and my disappointments. And we spoke about the essential need to distinguish between guilt, which is an action driving sense, which tells me that I'm responsible or accountable for something and not to, God forbid, fall into the pit of despair associated with shame, which only makes me feel like I'm doing something yet allows me to fester with those negative self-perceptions and negative thinking patterns. And what we're going to talk about today is the next step involved in any path towards recovering, whether it be from a specific substance of abuse, which one is struggling with. Now, obviously, when we're talking about a particular substance or object of addiction and the subsequent consequences that come about, it's of more necessity and there's a certain dire element to it and an urgency and there's an exigency to the moment. And that needs to be dealt with on the individual basis. But what we're trying to do in these classes and these shiram is convey an idea or a framework of the inner world of recovering that can be applied to each and every person, no matter where they find themselves, according to the subjective speculation of their own heart, according to the shiura dilibe, according to the conjecture and the encounter and the understanding that that individual has. Very often in the language of, you know, secularized recovery language or recovery language in general, which is a certain sacred secularism, there is a notion of, of the language of God of our understanding. 
Now, originally speaking in the process of the publication of those books, of the big book in particular, there was a conversation amongst the founding members as to whether the word God, G-O-D, should be brought into the book, because ultimately the program was meant to be a place for people of all creeds or of no creeds as a response to previously existing programs which catered to a particular religious denomination, the founding members wanted to leave the door open for anybody and everybody, whether the worship was towards a capital G God or whether the worship was to a capital V void, there meant, was meant to be a space for each and every person. And so originally speaking, there was a desire of some of the members to leave the word God out of the big book because of the fear of offending those who did not find themselves within that concept, or worse, perhaps were traumatized by such a concept. And in the process of considering and reconsidering the placement of that word God, there was an arrangement, there was a pshara of sorts, an agreement that the word God would be brought into the literature with regards to a recovery. But the addition, the qualifier of the word God would be of your understanding, meaning to say that no matter what conception of godliness or higher power a person has in their own lives, ultimately it is rooted deep down in the hashara of each and every person's lave. Each and every person according to the conjecture of their own heart. Because God of my understanding can be certainly easily misconstrued as simply saying, the way I cognitize the process of understanding God is what God is going to be to me. But that's not really getting to the core of the matter. Because if we look at understanding as a standalone experience that a person has, so then theoretically we're talking about a singular notion of a higher power for most people. And each and every person is going to have a process of understanding it differently. But when we understand from a grand perspective, from a micro as well as a macro systems perspective, understanding is not something that is born out of the ether, but rather my process of cognition, the systems of thinking and attitudes and postures and gestures that go into how I understand information, how I process information, goes back far beyond my experience in the womb itself. In order to understand and unthread the many threads that go into threading together the nature of my own understanding, I would need to unthread the entire fabric of reality. Because how I think and how each and every individual soul is marked with their process of understanding rests at the core of the confrontation with that soul in dialogue with HaKadosh Baruch Hu prior to the creation of the world. And so God of my understanding no longer simply means the way I understand the given information, but rather how my own most subjectivity and my singularity, my yechida shabanefesh, that part of me which is distinct and unique and good vis-a-vis -vis any other person in the world, irreducible in its goodness, that is what my understanding means. So when we talk about God of our understanding, it means the way that I relate to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the, the way that I relate to the concepts of return and the way that I relate to the concepts of recovering. And therefore, again and again and again, we need to remind ourselves that the dissemination of Torah is ideas are expressed yet it is going to be interpreted in the ear of the beholder in a different way and that doesn't mean that one person is misunderstanding it versus the other person who's understanding it but the truth of Torah the truth of insight is so deep that it can splinter into a million little pieces with each piece maintaining its own subjective truthfulness which is true for me as I experience truth and that's an idea that we're going to kind of 
of try and understand a little bit more tonight as well. That each and every one of us have to understand recovering in our own terms, and therefore we are making a distinction between substance, quote substance, in terms of an actual substance abuse disorder, versus the general themes of addiction or the potential towards addiction that we all find ourselves in, stuck within old patterns of behavior, old thinking patterns, old negative cognitive distortion, chametz, things that have been left over, baggage that we're not willing to let go of, hangups that we're not willing to let go of, theoretical resentments that we carry around in our head in the hopes that, you know, by being upset at whoever harmed me in one way or another, I will carry out some sort of cosmic justice by tearing that person apart in my mind, when ultimately I am the one who is buckling under the burden. And therefore, when it comes to our capacity to let it all go, we have to understand that addiction as well as recovery are subjective terms to each and every individual. What I want to talk about tonight, Be'ezrus Hashem, is the entryway into the world of recovery. Once we've decided to focus on each moment at a time, and once we've also understood that in spite of the fact that we look at each moment as a standalone entity, each moment is its own universe. Nevertheless, I have to see the next moment as a beginning again and re-beginning each and every moment as if the steps that I took previously are null and void in relationship to the step that I need to take now. And then we entered into the secret of personal narrative, of telling our own sipur, of living a sipur imaisios, of understanding that we are the author of our lives and we are the co-author with HaKadosh Baruch Hu of how we experience our experiences. And that's the secret of tshuva, how the present mindedness can reach back into the past actions, which are theoretically disconnected from actual existence. But the power of tshuva allows my present thinking and my present narrative structuring to inform the past events so that by the way of thinking presently, I inform the previous actions. The next step on the road to the inner world of recovery is going to be something we've spoken about in the past something that is very dear to me because it's sometimes the only way I survive on many levels. And that's the secret of acting as if, or in the language of Chazal, the secret of Ki'ilu, as if. What we find in Chazal in numerous places, that when a person does A, it's Ki'ilu, it's as if they accomplished B. When a person learns the halachos of Korbanos, it's as if they brought those karbanos. When a person teaches somebody else Torah, it's as if they have raised that person as their own child. When a person prays, they need to see to it as if they are standing in front of God. When Shabbos enters into a person's life, they need to see to it as if all of their work is done. When a person studies or learns or prays, they need to see to it as if their actions are what the world depends upon. When it comes to remembering the redemption from personal exile, a person has to see to it as if each and every year they are exiting exile and entering into redemption. And this notion of as if, this notion of ki'ilu is scattered throughout the writings of Chazal and brought down already in Midrashim and Halacha in terms of how we encounter the world. And so the question is, what exactly is this mechanism? What is this notion of as if that is conjured up in the mind of Chazal and the mind of our teachers? And what is it trying to teach us on a practical level? What is it that we're trying to understand? Chazal, Chazal, Chachmenu Zechronam Lebracha, our teachers, may their merits protect us, is also the gematria of Ma, of 45. And aside from being the name of Hashem on a certain level and the name of Adam, which is the gematria of 45, it also simply means Ma, 
when a person encounters words of Chazal that are used over and over, and the interdynamics and the hermeneutical structure of Torah Shabal Peh, of what it means to think like the Gemara, to think through the hermeneutic principles that Chazal have brought down into the world, the ultimate question we need to ask ourselves is Ma, what does this mean for me right now? What are Abaye and Rava saying to me at this moment, in 2021, when I'm struggling, et cetera, et cetera? And so if Chazal focused so much on this notion of Ki'ilu, to the extent that it's brought down the halacha by the Nesher Hagadol, by the Rambam, in the beginning of the halachos of Hilchos Tefillah, that we have to see to it as if we are standing in front of God when we pray, then it behooves us to try and understand what the psychological mechanism here is. What is the healing power of this notion of Ki'ilu? And to begin to understand, I want to look at a concept that is brought down very often in the writings about recovery, in writings of philosophical explorations as well. This is something that the Jewish philosopher Franz Rosenzweig, Zeche Lebracha, struggled with or had a lot of time to contemplate. And the notion is as follows. There's a concept referred to as faking it until a person makes it. Now, this is something that's repeated very often in rooms of recovery, in rooms of tshuva, in rooms of anonymous processes from the darkness into the light, that the notion is echoed and very often it melts into our modern day vernacular as well, that a person needs to fake something until they make it. Now, the idea seems to be understood as follows, that very often the most difficult thing for any human being to do is to be truly authentic in terms of their motivations and in terms of their desires. For to be human is to be blinded by our personal interests and our disinterests and to be driven by our biases and our self-satisfaction and egoisms. And the human being is stuck and cut through in many, many ways with a certain sense of sheker to the extent that it's very difficult for a person to claim that they're uttering anything that is true because subjectivity is always already seeing things through a tinted lens from an aspeklaria she'ena me'ira, from a lens that is not clear because it's caught up and seen through the elements of the self, the echoes and the creaks and the cracks and the bumps in the night that we experience within ourselves. And so the notion is that because authenticity is so difficult, because the quest for authenticity is so hard to actually accomplish, and most human beings live their lives cut through with a sense of phoniness, as Holland Caulfield taught us so deeply, that most people, when you look around at the world, it's phoniness, and a person is bothered by that phoniness. So there's a certain rule that has been applied to human development, which is fake it until you make it. Okay, you can't be authentic. So start off with inauthenticity, start off as a liar to your own self, start off with faulty motives. And eventually, if you work hard enough, if you do the work hard enough and you pray hard enough and you work on yourself hard enough and you rectify your character defects, then you'll come to a state of making it. So that faking it until you make it seems to be this bidieved, this secondary offering to a world that can't be authentic. Ideally, we should be authentic and true to ourselves and to the world outside of us because that's so difficult. So we're given a second option, which is fake it, be inauthentic until you can cast away your inauthenticity and come to understand the secret of authenticity. Now, it's an attractive way of thinking because we're idealistic very often, especially people who struggle. 
the people who struggle and who fall into the constriction and the confinement of addictions of any kind, of distortion, of psychic distress, of discomfort, of those elements of ourselves which makes life just that much more difficult. It's the secret of Yosef Das Yosef Machov, that the more knowledge that a person adds, the more self-awareness that a person has, the more difficulty a person experiences. And it's very difficult for us sometimes, for an individual sometimes, to live up to that idealism of truth. And if I can't live my true self, so when I find myself in a stage of faking it, when I find myself in a stage of inauthenticity, so sure, I can theoretically conjure up in my mind to see that, yeah, this inauthentic stage, this shalolishma, this dishonesty about my motivations as to why I'm doing what I'm doing on the path of return, it begins to fester within a person. It begins to make me look at how I'm acting right now and devalue it. I don't judge myself favorably because I feel I'm not living up to the apex of truth, to that apex of MS, to that apex of authenticity. And I always feel that the goal is to cast away my current actions of inauthenticity and to enter into the real goal of authenticity. And when I live my life with that bipolarity between the way things are right now in their reality versus the way that things should be in the future in their ideality, then I live caught in the middle between those two polarities and it's difficult and I judge myself unfavorably. But there's a secret. And I believe that this is part of the secret that Chazal is trying to teach us. Because there's another way of understanding the notion of faking it until you make it. Instead of looking at faking it as an unfortunate symptom of human experience that needs to be cast away when a person enters into a stage of making it finally and living an authentic life, the secret of faking it until you make it is really that ultimately there is no difference between faking it or making it. The ikr is the maisa. When it comes to a person embarking on the path of tshuva, we can find infinite reasons to judge ourselves unfavorably because of the faulty, broken nature of our motivations and the questions in our heart as to the absolute need for us to embark on the path of tshuva, for us to embark on the path of recovery. But if I come to understand that in truth, the deepest secret of all is that whether I'm faking it or whether I'm making it, ultimately all are the same because it's all dependent on how I choose to see things. At that point, I no longer live stuck between the distance separating inauthenticity from authenticity. I no longer live stuck in that jail cell between the broken down feeling of faking it and the idealized island of making it because I've come to realize that in truth, both both of them bespeak the authentic nature of living life as a human being. In other words, even in the depths of my inauthenticity, even if my motivations are wrong on all matters of wrongness, even if I can't seem to truly believe in what I'm actually saying that I believe in, nevertheless, the secret mechanism of ki'ilu, the secret mechanism of acting as if, is that Chazal are teaching us that acting as if is experiencing the real thing in and of itself. When Chazal say it's ki'ilu omed lefnei hamelech, when Chazal say that a person who's davening, they have to see to it as if they're standing in front of the king. And this is brought down the halacha in the Rambam, which means that it's deserving of our attention on a practical, minuscule basis of each and every word. And so when the Rambam adds that word ki'ilu, that's integral to the experience of prayer, which means that even though it's inauthentic, 
even though I can't truly say with the purity of my own heart that I know I'm standing in front of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, because who in the world other than the Tzadikim Ha'amitim, Shebedareinu, V'shaychnei Afar Ba'aretzheima, and those tzaddikim who lived before us. Other than the tzaddikim ha'amitim, who can say zachisi levavi and that I know with absolute certainty that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is right in front of me when I daven? Who can claim that they have gotten to a place of certainty and purified themselves from self-doubt and ontological doubt and spiritual doubt to reach a place of absolute certainty? Nobody. Nobody. Ultimately, the human experience is cut through with suffake. And even if we're 99.9% .9 sure about our attitudes and our perceptions, ultimately that 0.1 space of suffake is enough to passel the whole thing. It's enough to break down that entire edifice of certainty. And so if a person bases their religious work, their work of return, their work of recovering, their work of making healthy choices in their lives on the circumstances of absolute certainty that this is what I need to be doing or this is what I should be doing at this moment, then a person will never lift a pinky because a person will never find an opportunity to say it's absolutely abundantly clear to me. The only way to move forward is the secret that Chazal revealed to us, which is that faking it is also making it. It doesn't matter if you really believe what you're saying you believe. I believe in it because I say it. Or like we said last week, I have chosen the path of faith. Choosing faith is inauthentic at its core. Believing that the thing I believe in will become more true because I talk about it that way, that's inauthentic in its core. But the secret of Chazal and the secret of Yiddishkeit is that ultimately, Ki'ilu is like the real thing. That when I do something, even though I'm not really doing it absolutely and I'm only doing it as if, nevertheless, inherent and folded into that mindset of as if is a taste of the real thing. I'm actually tasting the feeling of as if I did that beautiful thing in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And as somebody quoted to me in the names of Rumi, I don't know if this is an actual quote or not, but the sentiment of it is so profoundly powerful to me that in the eyes of God, so to speak, counterfeit money is accepted as real money. Because our counterfeit worship of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, our Shalom and all of the Negios and the self-deception that we encounter and our phoniness and our inauthenticity, that's what it means to be human. That's who we are, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's the world you created for us. There was an argument between Emmas and Shalom. There was an argument between absolute truth and peace when it came to creating human beings. And the argument goes as follows. Peace said create them because they'll be able to get their act together no matter what happens. Emmas truth says don't create them. These are the opposite of Emmas. This is the opposite of truth. This world of duplicitous nature, this world which comes from the language of he'elem, of concealment, how can you ever expect truth to emerge from this world of falsehood that human beings experience? And instead of listening to truth and nodding his head at truth, so to speak, HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes truth and throws it down to the ground and it shatters into a million pieces to the extent that emetz may eretz titzmach, that truth in the future is going to grow forth from this world itself. Meaning to say that we are going to cultivate a new conception of truth, a truth that is so true that it no longer needs to be true, an authenticity that is so deeply embedded within the singularity of the spirit and the soul that even our inauthenticity is authentic. 
as the tzaddikim say that that from within the actions that are that are inauthentic, a person will ultimately come to the secret of lishma, of authenticity. And again, this statement has been interpreted, typically speaking, as the way that we typically would understand the concept of fake it until you make it. Fake it, do it until eventually you're smart enough, big enough, great enough, strong enough, handsome enough, beautiful enough in order to cast away the shells and the husks of inauthenticity and experience the real thing. But in truth, our tzaddikim tell us something beautiful. It's not a cause and effect. In truth, means that from the innermost point of at the center, the central point, the kernel of irreducible singularity that exists within authenticity rests the secret of lishma, which means that even our low lishma is lishma. Even our inauthenticity is authentic. Even our falsehood is lies. It doesn't matter what brings us to the table as long as we sit at the table. It doesn't matter what brings a person to the path of tshuva. It doesn't matter whether a person truly believes that they have an issue they need to work on or whether a person truly believes they have the capacity to fix themselves. In the end of the day, the only thing that matters is the action. The only thing that matters is getting myself on the path and no longer focusing and those distinctions between authenticity, inauthenticity, but rather living with the secret of ki'ilu, living with the secret of as if. This is something that, as we know, we've spoken about numerous times in the world of Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman, especially in the Maisa maybe Tachon, which we're not going to go into too deeply right now, but ultimately the crux of the story of the Maisa Mebitachon is how this individual, this soldier is walking around with a wooden sword, pretending, pretending, just hoping that nobody ever finds out that his sword is made of wood, that everything he's doing is just pretending, that all of the confidence and all of the spiritual security and all of the amida and the uprightness that he's walking with is ultimately just a big farce. It's a big joke. This individual is living in a world of inauthenticity. And the secret is that when confronted on that, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu calls him to task, when the Melech says, kill this person with your metal sword, instead of acknowledging, oh, I've been inauthentic all along, he takes out his wooden sword and everyone begins to laugh because he shows that even within my lie and even within my inauthenticity, even though I only have a wooden sword, Rabbona Shalom, even though all I have is my inauthenticity, nevertheless receive it as authentic. This is an essential understanding when it comes to the world of Rabbi Nachman. Rabbi Nachman writes as follows in the 51st teaching in Sikha Saran. I'm going to do a rough translation of it as follows. The service of God, I have absolutely no idea if there is anybody in the world who is capable of saying that they have actually served God in accordance with the greatness of God, because anybody who understands a little bit of the greatness of God understands that it is impossible to ever claim that they have fully served HaKadosh Baruch Hu, because even an angel or things that are above an angel cannot make themselves great or self-aggrandize themselves and claim that they've served God. But the ikr, the essential thing is the desire, to have strong desire, to ensure that our desire is strong perpetually to come close to God. And even though that all of us desire and yearn to come close to God, nevertheless, not every desire is the same. And there is a distinction between levels of desire. And then Rabbi Nachman continues and he says as follows, in truth, according to the greatness of God, 
all of our activity, all of our actions in this world are not considered anything. Rather, everything is by way of as if, because everything is just a joke and comedy in the eyes of the greatness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What we're doing is we're acting. We're acting. We just have wooden swords. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu is telling us through his tzaddikim, through Rabbi Nachman, that that's enough. Ki'ilu is enough. Chazal have already said it. Ki'ilu omed melech. As if I'm standing in front of the king. Do I know I'm standing in front of the king? Absolutely not. I have no idea if I'm standing in front of the king. Sometimes I don't even know the difference between me and a piece of garbage on the floor. Sometimes I don't know the difference between me and the greatest person in the world. In our innermost sanctuary of our hearts, there is an akuda of lishma. There is an akuda of authenticity that rests at the central site within the husks of inauthenticity. We have to be able to serve Hakadosh Baruch Hu, even though we know that we don't know. This becomes essential when it comes to the path of recovery. For example, let's take the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous or AA in general as a starting point. The first step of Alcoholics Anonymous reads as follows. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. So obviously that word alcohol can be crossed through and it can be filled in with anything, any word that a person wants to describe, whether it be another substance, whether it be an attitude or a thought process, an emotion, an experience, an anxiety. We have admitted that we were powerless over blank and that our lives have become unmanageable. Who can claim that that doesn't apply to them? All of us are powerless over something. But many clients that I encounter, many individuals that I encounter struggle with this notion of admittance. Because what we typically think of as admitting something is admitting to the truth. I know I did something wrong. I know there's something wrong. I'm not ready to admit it to you because I'm embarrassed or I'm ashamed. And then when I finally get to a place of being able to reveal it, so that's the concept of admitting. The implications and the inherent assumptions within that notion is that I know this thing to be true. I know I'm in need of chuva. I know I'm in need of recovering in whatever framework that looks like. But not everybody knows that. And nobody ultimately knows with 100% certainty whether they need this or they don't need that. There's an infinite level of skepticism and doubts that can be applied to those decisions. But there's another way of understanding the word admitting. Because if I want to go to a show, if I want to go into someplace, I buy a ticket of admission. Admission is not only admitting to something that I have known to be true, but admitting is buying in and entering into a particular space. It's choosing to act as if. When I enter into a room, I am memela, naturally considered to be part of that room, whether I feel I deserve to be there, need to be there or not. So when we look at the first step, instead of saying we admitted we were powerless, that we knew with 100% certainty that we couldn't do anything without HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so that nobody is going to step a foot on that path because every person can ask the questions of, do I really know, do I not know? But when we look at the word admit as admission, as entering in, in spite of the fact that I might not know, so then it becomes a different story. At that point, I can act as if, at that point, I can enter into a space with or without that authentic decision or sense of deep need to be in that space, and I can do what I need to do. That's the secret of Ki'ilu. The secret of Ki'ilu is that even in my inauthenticity, even in my pretending, 
even in my joking with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's enough sometimes for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There's an incredible, incredible, incredible teaching from the Kajanitzer Magid, which takes this a step beyond. Not only is it okay to pretend, not only is it okay to live in that site of inauthenticity, but to understand the authenticity of being inauthentic is of a deeper level on a certain level than to be authentic itself. That when I'm doing something shalom lishma, and I come to the awareness that buried within this garment of lo lishma rests a kernel of lishma, that buried within the husks of inauthenticity rests a kernel of authenticity that exceeds and breaks the barriers that separate authenticity and inauthenticity, I am coming to a deeper understanding of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now listen to the words of the Kajanitzer Magid. They're hard to believe, actually. There are many times in a relationship where somebody has absolutely no desire to offer themselves up in any type of compassion or love or emotional stability. But because of their love for the other person and their awareness of how deeply the other person is yearning for them, they're willing to act as if they're interested in conversation, as if they're interested in emotional connection, because they know how deeply their loved one needs it. And they prepare themselves and they make themselves present with a smile on their face as if it appears ki'ilu to their loved one that there's interest there. But in truth, their intentions are not there because they're struggling. There's no happiness there. There's difficulty because of whatever reasons have been going on, whether it's external reasons, internal reasons that prevent true desire from emerging. But nevertheless, because of the love for the other person, they're willing to sacrifice themselves for that hidden love that exists underneath the sheets of inauthenticity. And in truth, if their loved one understood the self-sacrifice, if we understood that even though that person is sitting in front of us offering themselves up with a smile and a kind word and compassion and rachamim and empathy, if we knew that deep down this was the last thing in the world they wanted to do, if we knew that deep down this was the last attempt of relationship that they were interested in, our love for that individual would double because we would understand the serious nefesh that is being given over by that person to act as if they're interested in having a conversation with us. And the Kajanitzer Magid goes deeper with the metaphor. He says that so too with our relationship with God, that Hashem wants our mitzvot, Hashem wants our observance, Hashem wants our amuna. Hashem wants us to embark on a path of return, on a path of recovering. But we don't want to. We don't believe in it. There's so many different reasons why we don't believe in it. There's infinite reasons that we don't want to believe in it. But nevertheless, nevertheless, because we know it makes Hashem happy, because we know embarking on a path of tshuva and embarking on a path of return and embarking on a path of recovering brings joy to God, so to speak, in whatever ideal way that means something. Nevertheless, we sacrifice ourselves and we gird ourselves to embark that process for the sake of Hashem. The only difference is that while in an interpersonal relationship, the loved one does not know what rests in the heart of the other, and it's a a tragic comedy of misunderstanding of motivation by Hashem, he understands our innermost heart. Hashem knows that we don't want to be in this relationship sometimes. Hashem knows that we don't believe in this relationship sometimes. Hashem knows that it's just ki'ilu. 
Hashem knows that we're just playing with wooden swords. Hashem knows that in relationship to the truth, all of this is just a big act of comedy and a joke. Hashem knows we're stumbling around in the dark without knowing anything. But nevertheless, Hashem sees our mysterious nefesh and our willingness to act as if and to pretend we feel what we're supposed to feel that the joy and the love and the compassion and the racham and rabim that descends from HaKadosh Baruch Hu in response to that is, unfold, is untold. Because Hashem understands that deep down, even though it's just Ki'ilu, we're still willing to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is the secret of Ki'ilu. This is the Maisa. There's a Maisa that the Holy Brothers, the Holy Brothers, the Noyim Elimelech, and the Rebbe Rebzushya, they were having a conversation about the experience that they have on Shabbos. And they were talking to each other about how profoundly strong and remarkable the experience of Shabbos was. To the extent, as Sadiqim do, that they became afraid. They said, perhaps we're serving ourselves here. Perhaps we're not serving Hashem. Perhaps we're not serving God, but serving ourselves. We enjoy the food. We enjoy the honor. We enjoy the attention. So the Holy Brothers made a decision that in order to test themselves, in order to see what they were truly celebrating, whether it was their own egos or whether it was the true taste of Shabbos, so they decided to hold Tish and make Shabbos in the middle of the week. And they were going to see how they felt. They were going to dress up for Shabbos. They were going to make their plans for Shabbos. And if they felt the light of Shabbos in the middle of the week, as they would feel on Shabbos, then it would be revealed to them that their joy and their experience had nothing to do with Shabbos, but had everything to do with their own egos. And Kahava, they set up their Titian and they wear their Bekesha and they dress up in their Shabbos clothes. And they come back to each other and they're terrified because they felt the Hiskashras to Shabbos. They felt that Meimenuchos of Shabbos. They felt that Ka'echs of Noyam Shabbos. And they came running to their Rebbe and they said, Rebbe, Rebbe, it has become apparent to us that we're serving ourselves and not Shabbos. And they told them the Maisa. And the Holy Magid quiets them down and he says, Chevra, relax. Tell me exactly what you're surprised by. Are you surprised by the fact that you dressed up for Shabbos, you pretended it was Shabbos and you felt it was Shabbos? That's the power of Shabbos. The secret is that pretending is in and of itself that very thing that we're pretending to accomplish. And Pasha that a person who pretends that a Shabbos properly will feel that a Shabbos, not because they're inauthentic, but because of how deeply authentic the sense of Shabbos is. That's the secret of Ki'ilu, of acting as if, of serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu as jokers and jesters and understanding like Davin Malka Meshicha understood that I am just a badchan of the Melech. I am a jester for the king. A jester knows he's just joking. A jester knows that what he's saying is not necessarily what emerges out of the spontaneous eruption of his heart. And nevertheless, that jester is willing to dance like Davin Malka Meshicha danced until a point of expiration in front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There's a profound teaching which we're going to end with, which is known as Nefesh HaShefela, a treatise or a statement on a lowly, destitute spirit. And the Masorah goes that this was what the Balatanya revealed on his deathbed at the end of the Balatanya's life, in contemplating how ultimately to serve God down here in a world of recovering, in a world of difficulty, in a world of concealment, is of a much higher value than serving God in a place of no concealment and revelation, the Baal Hatanya revealed as follows. He says as follows, Nefesh The true value of a destitute spirit, of a humble spirit, in the deepest element of its truth, 
Its work is a Torah of this worldliness, of physicality, of mundanity. Whether it's with regards to my own experiences or whether it's regards to other people's experiences. And even when that means of engaging in practical mundane matters of settling monetary disputes between ignoramuses, that becomes the Torah that becomes the essential place of encountering God. Even though most of it is the Davar Sheker, even though most of it is falsehood, there's no other way around it. This is a world of sheker. This is the Ahmad the Shikra. There's no way around the sheker until we dig down deep enough into the sheker to realize that there's an MS within the sheker as well. All we can do is do kindness of MS and ain't MS ela Torah. The true acts of kindness are associated with the Torah, and we know that the Torah itself says that this is not a world of truth, which means that digging down deep into the world of Sheker, digging down deep into that capacity to pretend, to make excuses, to live inauthentically, that's where the deepest secret of the Torah of Gashmas is. Because ki ain emes ele Torah, there's no truth rather than Torah, and truth said not to create the world, because the entire world is created with lies. But Chesed said, create the world. And Hashem threw truth to the ground. And he said, let me create a world of Chesed. And that's typically going to be a Chesed She'en Shel Emes. That the ultimate goal of understanding the Yichud of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is to understand the joke of it all. Is to understand that you're right, we're pretending. But that's exactly how HaKadosh Baruch Hu demanded it of us. If things were absolutely clear, if we knew with 100% certainty that we needed to embark on a path of return and a path of recovering, then it wouldn't be a Chiddush. A person wouldn't be a Baal Bechira. A person wouldn't have that free choice. But it's specifically when we're thrown down into a world of untruth, into a world of falsehood, into a world where we don't know anything with certainty, where we have the capacity of uncovering the secret of ki'ilu, of acting as if, of recognizing that faking it until I make it does not mean that I'll graduate from faking it and come to a place of understanding the true authenticity of making it, but rather adaraba, ibcha the truth of tshuva is coming to realize that even within the depths of my hypocrisy, even in the, within the depths of my ignorance and my shakarim and all of my inauthenticity and my acting as if there rests the kernel of the deepest sense of truth, which is that because I'm the Baal narrative, I'm the one who gets to tell my own story. So even if it's not true, it's true because ultimately I'm serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu Ki'ilu. And when we serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu Ki'ilu, we come to realize that nobody has the right to tell me whether I'm right or wrong. Only me and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. As Rabbi Akiva said to Rashbi, Rabbi Akiva said to Rashbi, when Rashbi was struggling, he said, It's enough that me and your master and God recognize your greatness. This is not a world of acknowledgement. This is a world of anonymity. This is a world of people doing what they do, thinking that other people are talking about them, thinking about them, when ultimately the deepest truth is that nobody is thinking about us but ourselves. Most human beings are self-centered. Most human beings are not evil. They're just focused on their own thing. And instead of trying to gauge our authenticity in the eyes of the other, what we need to try and do is embrace the authenticity of ourselves that rests even hidden within the world of inauthenticity and to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu with our wooden swords as if they were real, the Ezra Sashem.
This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.